You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media here at our Northern Command Center on Tuesday, March the 12th. Now, Tuesdays are usually when the week really starts to heat up for me. Um, but for me, it started to heat up yesterday because, of course, as you know, it was budget day. Budget, healthcare, immigration, civilizations, economies – are built or destroyed on those issues. So I want to focus a little bit on those issues today. I hope to have on a special guest, Congressman Chip Roy from Texas 21. That's the San Antonio, Austin area. He is a longtime friend of the show, personal friend for many years, and still hard to believe he is a member of Congress. Um, very dicey schedule for him, so I'm going to see if he could come on our second half of the show today. Uh, But until then, and really because of what I anticipate if we do get him on the show, a discussion on baselines, setting baselines, budgetary baselines, policy baselines, cultural baselines, values baselines. What is the baseline from which we craft our vision versus having no baseline and our baseline just moves inexorably to the left side of the ledger with every year we cede power to the left and all of their institutions. And then we become acculturated to certain absurdities as if this is the new norm in America and we don't we don't even cry out anymore. We don't speak out. We don't even make these points. Well, that's why we started the conservative conscience because we will make these points. We will be that clarion call in the wilderness where everyone seems to be asleep. We will be that frog that indeed does jump out of the um, that boiling pot of water to actually make a stand. First baseline I want to discuss today is a cultural baseline. But because I promised that this week I'm going to start with good news, I want to discuss something first. Got to talk about good news. I know everyone wants to hear good news. They don't want me to complain all the time. Oh, they just want to hear that everything is hunky-dory. So we actually won a court case. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Sutton issued a majority opinion, 11 to 6, saying that Ohio indeed can cut off funding to Planned Parenthood for non-therapeutic abortions. If you remember John Kasich, who was the former governor um, to the left of many Democrats, but he, he was officially a Republican, he didn't even want to sign the bill because he didn't want to defend it in the courts. And they lost at the district level, so he finally won in the Sixth Circuit. Indeed, there's no constitutional right for a private group to get funding for abortions. Yay, yay, we won. Well, that's the extent of the good news. But as you know, as I've said so often, 
they only need to win one time in one court at one period of time in history. We need to win every time. So classic example. I mean, look, it's better than nothing, but I got to give you some good news. Anyway, on to the show. On to the show here. So a cultural baseline that I think all of us have totally, totally lost sight of. In the 1960s, when Kennedy and his ilk in the Johnson administration were crafting the Hart-Seller Act, the bill that broke our legal immigration system and just completely changed our history and tradition on immigration, they weren't selling it as a fundamental transformation. They weren't like Obama where they got up and said, we're going to fundamentally transform America. They didn't say that at all. They, in fact, promised that 90%, most of our immigrants will still be from Europe. This is not going to flood our country with people from the third world. The point is, they lied to us, but still, they at least had to make the case. They at least understood that there were universal values that we like America the way it is, and we want to keep it that way. As Theodore Sedgwick, congressman from Massachusetts, said in 1790 under uh, during the first naturalization debate, as such, they understood that you can't bring in people in mass in large quantities over a short period of time from places that have radically different values standards of living, morals, and just is you can't you don't fundamentally alter a society. But if you're cooking something in a pot, you have a melting pot where you want to spice it up and all you know have one common uniform taste. But you don't sit and dump an entire bottle of pepper or garlic into it. It's it's simple common sense. It's a common sense baseline that never even had to be spoken out. We all understood it. And as I've noted before, Chuck Schumer himself said this as late as during the debate over the 1990 Immigration Act, which was originally a promise, um, you know, to to change and fix what wound up happening in the 1965 Act that, of course, they said wouldn't happen. But instead, that bill actually made things even worse. It expanded chain migration, expanded third world mass migration. But even back then, Chuck Schumer promised that we're going to bring in people with skills. It's not going to hurt Americans, hurt our economy. Immigration should never hurt our economy. And he amazingly said, quote, immigration should be as diverse as it once was because countries like Ireland, Italy, Poland, and Nigeria cannot get people into this country, even though there are many people of that ancestry here. And basically, he was hinting to the fact that particularly then, and it's still going on now, but it's just more places, it was just all given over to Latin America, just monopolized it. And wait a minute, whoever made that decision? But then it expanded, since Schumer made those comments, in addition to Latin America, to the Islamic world. And one of those places 
is Somalia. Okay. Now, we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week when Congress, the House, was voting on that resolution in response to Ilhan Omer's comments in the Somalian uh, congresswoman from Minneapolis, from Mogadishu, when she just started spewing a bunch of anti-Semitic kind of third-world conspiracy theories about Jews. So obviously you guys know the end of the story. They went and voted on something that actually condemned anti-Islamic hate didn't even mention anti-Semitism. You got to love the Democrats. I mean, they don't see it an inch. So that's just, you know, besides the point. But anyway, something very interesting, and I would regard as almost a seminal moment, happened last week when both Nancy Pelosi and Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky defended Pelosi, uh, sorry, defended Omar by saying, look, you know, I'm just paraphrasing here. It's essentially not her fault because she comes from a different culture. She she doesn't know any better. And I found it interesting. You know, the click conservatives in conservative media were outraged by that. They're like, man, you're throwing all these people under the bus. You're, 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 how dare you make excuses for Omar? They were trying to win a racial argument and say, see, you're more racist than us. You're, you're, you're saying racist things about these people. We, we, we think they're fine. It's just Omar's the problem. And simultaneously, while they were trying to win a racial argument, which they're always trying to do, I was trying to win a civilization argument. And I said, wait a minute. There's a lot of lemonade we can make with those lemons that the Democrats just gave us. The Democrats just went on record as admitting what we have been saying since our founding here, that we are bringing in hundreds of thousands of people a year on green cards and student visas from parts of the world that overwhelmingly dislike Jews. And I made the point that if we had areas of the world that were white supremacist, not everyone, but you know, largely the people coming from there are like that, would we bring in mass numbers from those areas? Should we bring in mass numbers? And my, my answer would be no, I don't think we should because I think we want people to share our universal values. Likewise, if they're Islamic supremacist, should we do that? And I think some of you know everyone on the right, everyone on the click conservative movement, they're obsessed with Omar, but they're they're missing the point. It's not about her, about one person. This is so much bigger than that. This is the fact that we brought in about hundred fifty thousand Somalis since the nineties, very much clustered in. The Minneapolis area, but they're in, you know, Lewiston, Maine. They're in a community in Dallas. They're in places in Kansas. All over the place. And more than any other Islamic country in particular, we've had the most problems from them, both in terms of just general crime and then obviously jihadist activity. But certainly the values behind that. It was very telling that they are essentially admitting, the Democrats are admitting, yeah, they come from a culture where, yeah, look, you can't blame her. Look, come on, it's not the same thing as one of us saying anti-Semitic comments. Look, come on, she comes from there. But that's exactly the point. Shouldn't we all agree? I'm not making a, a right or left point here. 
Shouldn't we all agree that if you have parts of the world that you know anti-Semitic views are pervasive and this whole conspiracy business, oh, the Jews run the world, this type of thing, it is, uh, you know, permeates every aspect of that culture. Should we bring in large numbers of people from there? In any other generation, everyone would have said no. That is the argument we need to be making here. Look, you bring in a couple here and there, you assimilate them, fine. But when you have such large communities coming in, you're not going to assimilate them. So what are you going to get? Well, take a poll of the people in these areas. I don't have Somalia, but if you look at the Pew polling on some other countries there, you ask them about Sharia law, you ask them about their favorability of Jews, and guess what? You're not going to see very nice things. And Democrats just admitted it. So anyway, I just found it funny that the conservative movement is trying to win this, uh, you know, intersectionality Olympics. See, you're racist. You know, one of them, um, Dana Lash, I'm not, you know, she's fine. I'm just saying she made the point that Hersey, um, she's a famous, she's conservative activist from Somalia. You know, she said, she has no problem. She's not an anti-Semite. So what are you talking about? Like, as if Democrats, why are you painting all Somalis that way? She's missed the point. Hersey is a Christian. And that is not the case of 99.9% of those coming from there. So, you know, the issue is not that. The issue is Democrats just admitted our point. Um, in 2017, a German think tank, the Hans Seidel Foundation, it's a think tank affiliated with the Christian Social Union Party in the southern state of Bavaria. They pulled a group of 800 refugees recent refugees that came from Syria, um, Eritrea, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And they asked them about their view of Jews. Do you believe Jews have too much influence in the world? 52% of Syrians said yes. 53% of Iraqis agreed with that statement. As well as 60% of Afghanis. Okay. Now, this is not a racial thing because, interestingly enough, they also pulled – they evidently have refugees from Eritrea, which is a majority Christian country that's right near a country like Somalia. And guess what? When they asked that very same question, do Jews have too much influence in the world? A mere 5.4% held that view. So you see, it does matter where you're coming from. It absolutely matters. So I just felt that was an important point that we have seeded that baseline. And just to kind of move on from that, it's the same baseline we're seeding with Central America. That if you bring in millions now, it's going to be millions when you add up all these years from indigenous populations in Central America that somehow the value system, the standard of living, that it just doesn't matter when you just dump that into America with no regard. 
for our cultural values. No, no one will even make that case. And again, I'm telling you, any other generation, everyone would have been making that case, including some of the Democrats still, still around. So um, that's the story. This is totally out of control. Totally out of control. So President Trump is still in Never Never Land. He's still noting that, oh, we're ending catch and release. We're building border walls. He is not talking about the emergency. The only thing they're doing is trying to negotiate with the Senate not to embarrass him and vote down his emergency act. But again, it's all, all of his political capital is geared towards what? Obsessing about 2.6 billion in reprogrammed funding for border fencing. When, as we noted, well, I put out the article today, but you guys who listened to this show heard this earlier. You're one of the only ones to understand this now. What should probably be the most important story of the day, but no one else will pick up on it. And that is our Border Patrol believes that the courts have ordered them to accept in anyone who declares asylum to such an extent that even those that wait behind a border wall, we will go out and send the Border Patrol out to pick them up and bring them in. So rather than end using his Emergencies Act to end that policy, which even the media is reporting on now, which intuitively people understand more, you get into a debate over the efficacy of a border fence and reprogramming appropriations where he's on less legal footing relative to just shutting off migration. And otherwise, just totally ignoring the crisis. And again, I want to just mention the fact that you can never appropriate your way out of this problem. It's not a funding issue. It's not a money issue. It's not an asset issue. It's not a fencing issue. It's a suicidal mentality of our baseline. We don't have a baseline of values that we would all understand at some point in our history, that if you get to the point where you have entire countries emptying out and coming to your border, you're going to shut it. You're going to shut it because of the public charge. You're going to shut it because of the cultural problems. You're going to shut it because of the crime and the drugs. You're going to shut it because of the diseases alone. They used to call that a conspiracy theory when we talked about that. Now CNN has the report over 2,200 in quarantine. But it's worse than that because we're letting them go within 24 hours now. It's not even 20 days. It's not even the florist ruling anymore because of those court rulings and because the administration refusing to follow the law and then they're instead following the most liberal judge that the ACLU takes them to. Guess what happens? We don't even have enough bed space to hold them for the 20 days. You mean to tell me within 24 hours we've done the proper health screenings? All these diseases that A, some of them like Zika or hepatitis, Chagas, that... um. Uh, they're not. There's no vaccines for, or even the ones where there are vaccines for. But if they've already, if they're already contracted it, albeit haven't shown signs of it, you could give them inoculation. You let them out. They're gonna have mumps. Could take 24 days to develop mumps. The the symptoms from the time you contract it. But no. 
we have lost that result. We don't believe in America anymore. We don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe in a country. We don't believe in a budget. We don't believe in freedom and healthcare. We don't believe in our values anymore. That, 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 that's the sad thing. I'm sorry to say it, but we don't believe in our values anymore. And part of why I say this is because, ironically, the more resources you divert to the border, the more that gets marshaled into the catch and release. I was joking around. It's better if we wouldn't have border patrol. At least if they sit behind the fence in the areas where we do have it, there's no one to pick them up. There's no one to surrender themselves to. Now, ironically, you know, they're being used as hospitals. It's insane. Utterly insane. Just last night in the Yuma sector, another 750 people caught, surrendering themselves at Yuma. And um, I'm forgetting the numbers here. It was roughly 124 or so had to be taken to hospital. So there, there you have it. They're not even just treating them in the field, which they are some of them. They're bringing them into our country. They're bringing them into our hospitals. If you believe we need to manage an, an invasion, I can't help you. The LA Times also has an interesting article interviewing Arizona ranchers doing the exact same thing I did with Jim Chilton. And they do quote Chilton in that article. And it's actually a pretty good article from the LA Times noting you know, just their complaints that the Border Patrol doesn't hold the line. They don't patrol the line. They apprehend. We don't treat this like an invasion because we don't believe in our country. We feel guilty about it. And until we change our baseline mentality, our mentality on immigration, our mentality on an invasion, our mentality on sovereignty in the border, none of this matters because we're inviting everyone in. So, for example, remember I warned you that the Canadian border is heating up. Well, guess what? Guess what? More than 960 people crossed into the U.S. illegally from the northern border with Canada last year. That might not sound like a lot, but there's a 91% increase from the prior year. (laughs) So, what, are you going to build a 2,000-mile wall on our northern border? That's never in the cards. A lot of them are coming in Vermont. And as I noted, a lot of them are Romanian nationals, Romanian gypsies. And uh, I was speaking with Jessica Vaughn the other day. They have them in detention centers in Pennsylvania, and they're petitioning the courts for all sorts of rights. We're not deporting them. We're not deporting them at all. And now with Canada's liberal leadership, they're giving a lot of these people visas, almost doing what Mexico does, and they come here. So that, that's the next thing to watch. That's the next shoe to drop. It's not just Central America and it's not just the southern border. It's the entire world will come any way they can if we 
if we believe that anyone could come and if you're a certain ilk, it's impossible to deport you. Others, it takes forever. And almost nobody, do we just say, we catch you here, you're out of here. Do not stop. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200,000. Do not collect birthright citizenship. Do not collect any other welfare, educational, or, or healthcare entitlements. You're out of here. That's what a normal country does. We don't believe in that. So they're going to keep coming. Everything else is a distraction. Total distraction. But it's worse than just coming here. What happens once we believe we need to let in anyone even from behind the fence? What happens when we bring them in? We let them go. Arizona Republic is reporting. The data show. That. Listen to this. They didn't even start keeping track of the people they were releasing. Until December 21st, which which was well into this border crisis, which started five, six months earlier. So just over two months, 84,500 illegals from Central America have been just dumped off randomly. 37,500 in South Texas, 14,500 in Phoenix, 24,000 in El Paso, and 8,500 in San Diego. Could you imagine the public charge, the criminal elements, the exposure to diseases, and they'll never be deported? Every single day this goes on. That's just a two-month period. Two months we released 84,500. Think about that. I mean, that's on pace for four or five hundred thousand on an annual pace of released into our country. The most impoverished people imaginable. This is not your country to give away, Mr. President. This just is not your country. You need, you have an obligation. If you're going to declare emergency, emergency, first of all, hold a press conference. Talk about all this stuff. He never even talked about it since all this news came out. He was proven right. Talk about it. In addition, actually make it a real emergency. And shut off the border migration. Stand up to the courts. Stop continuing catch and release. We're going to be talking about other remedies But call up the National Guard. Hold the line against the cartels. Put regular military units there. Designate the cartels as terrorists. We're going to have Chip Roy on. He just introduced his bill because he sent a letter asking the administration to designate the cartels. Now he has a separate bill doing it. And... um, I haven't heard word back from the administration. We'll find out what's going on with that. But it's like on no other level has he declared an emergency or treated it as an emergency or even talked about it to the degree the media is talking about other than reprogramming $2 billion. Really? Are you kidding me? We're getting played here. I mean, even Lou Dobbs, I never thought he'd break with Trump. Finally, he's like... Dude, this is not what you promised. If you are so weak that you cannot control this, step down. 
then this whole thing's alive. Oh, it's not his fault. Of course, it's everyone else's fault. All right, so then what's the point of him being president? I mean, you can't have it both ways. The point is, this is not a time to sit and debate. Okay, so are you saying you want the Democrats? Should we not vote for Trump? It has nothing to do with that. That, That's far off. That's well over a year and a half away. Let's talk in the here and now. We could be pressuring him to do the right thing rather than making excuses or ignoring so that he will likely have a better chance of being reelected anyway. So that's the story with that. There's a lot more news on immigration. You could follow my Twitter account. By the way, I was finally verified. I got that blue check mark. So I don't know how they haven't kicked me off Twitter by now based on what I say, but somehow I got lucky with that. Um, by the way, an interesting thing. Guess what? You know what happened yesterday? The administration declared a national emergency on Venezuela. <laughs> no one has a problem with that. Because again, it's always okay to care about other people from other country, just not our own. Because we don't believe in ourselves anymore. We just don't believe in ourselves. So that's the story. Um, Gosh, I can't even, honestly, I can't even remember. I can't even remember everything I've dealt with today. But, um... There's, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Tons of stuff on illegal immigration that we haven't even gotten to. Stuff going on in the upper Great Plains with drug traffickers, labor traffickers. I want to try to have Jessica Vaughn on the show later this week to discuss some of this. But uh, there's a lot of other news. But I want to move on. So actually, in the middle of the show now, we did get Representative Chip Roy on the line and I know he has a really busy schedule, so I want to bring him in as soon as possible. Hey, Chip, thanks for joining us today. Happy to, Daniel. Sorry that it's a little bit late. We uh, had votes that were called in the middle of the day. And so, you know, you got to go down and uh, and deal with the votes on the floor. So sorry about that. Yeah, well, very important votes. I'm sure uh, they were dealing with our border crisis, um, our debt crisis, huh. and our health care crisis. <laughs> no, you know, they, they, these were votes that were basically kind of you know, message votes about Russia, you know, not, nothing we're doing on the floor of the House is truly moving the needle on any of the issues that your listeners or most of the American people or the people who live in my district or the district I represent, I should say, care about. And uh, hopefully we'll get more to that. And we obviously had some interesting stuff going on in the Budget Committee today and, and other things I'm happy to talk about wherever you want to go. Sure, yeah. I mean, we have a limited amount of time. There's so much I want to go on. But but again, I think those three, um, debt, health care, and immigration, I mean, that makes or breaks an economy and, and a culture and a society, a nation state. So on immigration, I'm glad you brought up Russia. So everyone's very concerned about Russia. Now, if we're concerned about Russia by a factor of 10,000, we should be concerned about um, the most brutal cartels that were doing beheadings and butcherings before you know the Islamists were even doing it in the Middle East – are on our border, they're on our side of the border, they're in our communities, they're orchestrating a seamless flow, an operation, just owning our sovereignty. I had ranchers on this show from Arizona discussing how their property is overrun with Hakons, um, these scouts, uh, coordinating all sorts of drug trafficking on our communities, 
you just dropped a bill today dealing with the cartels. Could you describe that to our listeners? Sure. Yeah, the purpose, and I, and I'm, I was glad to do it. It was uh, jointly introduced by my friend Mark Green from Tennessee, and uh, you know our our purpose in doing that was to uh, make sure that we're getting the State Department to take steps to designate these cartels, and not just any cartels, but the specific cartels that are causing us direct harm, designating them as foreign terrorist organizations. Now, we think that's important because it both speaks to the heart of what's happening at our border, which you've talked to numerous times to your listeners. We don't need to go into that in specific detail, but we know what's happening with the engagement of the cartels at our border, specifically the Reynosa faction of the Gulf Cartel, uh, the the uh, Cartel del Noreste of the Lozetas. Uh, you talked about others, and, and, and they're directly impacting our country. They're causing MS-13 and dangerous gangs to get farther up into our communities. They're moving dangerous fentanyl, heroin, cocaine. They're moving this, uh, this, this continued pressure on our border, the humanitarian crisis for profit, uh, and, and uh, exploiting our asylum laws for profit. And they're doing so with direct harm to the United States as, as a part of their uh, motive and goal with respect to profit-seeking, as well as just to continue to cause havoc among our law enforcement personnel at the border. So we believe we should treat them as the foreign terrorist organizations that they are. I was heartened to see an article in the Washington Post today uh, talking about the uh, consideration by the president in making that designation or declaration. So our legislation would build upon the letter that we sent to the secretary of state uh, asking that they consider making this designation. And our legislation would, uh, would, would specifically mandate that they go through that analysis. Sure. And and we don't need to get in with our audience into the, just the details of why they should be designated. I think our audience is very educated on this, understands that they're not even just drug cartels anymore. This is rooted in a culture ideology, um, very deeply rooted, and it gets into some of the history behind them, uh, that this is not just about drugs. This is a, a much bigger agenda. And certainly the tactics they use are definitely terrorist tactics and definitely affects us more than than pretty much any adversary we have. I, I can't think of an adversary that has done to us what the what the cartels have done to us. Um, so I think they understand the case. But in terms of progress, have you heard anything from the State Department or the administration? You know, not yet. Uh, I, nothing specific. But I, but I will say, as I said, um, I am uh, delighted that I saw a news story today that indicated the president's interest and willingness to consider it. Uh, I do believe that our uh, letter has taken been taken note of, uh, both in the State Department as well as in the White House, and that there's continued rumbling by many of us who know how dangerous our border is. Uh, that we ought to make this, uh, uh, you know, the president ought to consider doing making this change. So I think I think that there's some serious discussions going on, and we just got to keep pushing on it. Okay, as far as just the general immigration issue, I'm trying to see if you could update us on anything you've seen where you are, because I know when we had this debate during the government shutdown, then when we had the short-term CR, many of us were happy, if nothing else, that. Finally, 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 this issue rocketed up to the top national issue, dominated discussion. Then, unfortunately, Republicans gave away the farm, totally gave Democrats what they wanted. I know you opposed that bill. And now, even though the news that has come out, even from the mainstream media, demonstrates this is worse of an emergency than anyone even realized, yet it's still 
doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I mean, there's no impetus to do anything, right? Well, I wish I could give a slightly more positive report than you just uh, articulated. But unfortunately, what we see at the border is a continuation of our broken system. It is getting worse, not better. With all due respect to the administration, which I do believe is taking significant steps to try to increase our physical barriers at the border, despite a recalcitrant Congress. And I think you agree with that. I think they're trying to take steps in that direction. But unfortunately, they're not doing what is necessary to, if you're truly going to take steps in response to an emergency, I believe there is one. Those steps should be commiserate with the nature of the emergency. (laughs) That is, we should act swiftly. We should be stopping the catch and release, which is currently 90%-ish of those who are uh, that we're getting as they come across the border who, are, who, who aren't running away, really. They're just coming across saying, hi, I'm here. Then they go to a processing center. They get processed within 48 hours. Then they're put on a bus, and they're sent anywhere in the country that they're trying to go. And that's what's wrong with our system, and we're doing nothing to stop that judicially created, judicially enforced, but willingly succumb to by the executive branch, catch and release. <clears throat> if I were advising the president, I would say be more bold, be more aggressive uh, in, in dealing with ending the catch and release. Uh, I would still hold families together, but I would hold them together as they're being processed. I would tightly interpret the asylum laws so that we're, of course, giving grace and, 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 and following the, the purpose of the asylum laws for those who are truly seeking asylum from a country that is purposely causing them harm such that they can't go back. But we should follow our asylum laws the way that they were intended, not as they just come across and get out of jail free card. You get to walk into the United States and say, boom, I'm here. That's what's happening. And all of the you know feet, maybe half a mile, mile, whatever of fencing that's being built as we speak, is doing nothing to address those issues. So that is a long-winded way to say we've got way uh, much, uh, way farther to go to deal with our border uh, security that needs to be dealt with and deal with the crisis at the border. Okay, you know, I was going to move on to budget, but I'd be remiss to not delve into this. You just brought up the courts. I'm pulling my hair out. Here's what I don't understand. A lot of people have, are saying you have, hair left, you have hair left to pull out. Oh, see, yeah, at least at least I got that over you, you know. But if I if I <laughs> served in Congress like you, I'd probably lose it. Um, sitting through some of those uh, hearings, you sit through a while, unbelievable. But um, anyway, the courts. Um, here here's I, I just I can't I, I just don't understand it. A lot of even some of your colleagues, even some of our mutual friends, are like, well, we got to change the policies. Congress passed a law. What people don't realize is starting to happen is that the courts are downright saying longstanding immigration statutes are invalid. For example, IRA IRA passed in 1996, a part of the bill that stripped the courts of jurisdiction to hear habeas corpus appeals on the rejection of asylums and among other cases of, of illegals coming in. They are saying you can't do that. So my question is – if a court could take something dealing with two plenary powers of Congress, immigration and defining court's jurisdiction, and that bill passed the Senate by voice vote, it passed the House something like 400 to 30, and they could come you know, over 20 years later and say, I don't like it, and that's regarded as the law, I, I don't 
I think you should just go home. I mean, who needs you in Congress? We have one branch of government. Well, I think you raise an important point. You and I could sit here for hours just regaling the extent to which the courts have taken over our lives, whether it's on issues like we're dealing with here at the border and arbitrarily creating a policy of catch and release out of a court, not not out of our elected representatives, uh, not even out of our states, but out of a court. Uh, whether we're talking about marriage, whether we're talking about any of the, you know, uh, impossible to count, um, you know, decisions by the courts in terms of, for example, the president being able to make a determination of who's allowed to come into our country from terror sponsored countries or countries that wish us harm or any other reason that we've uh, empowered the president to do so. And he has the ability to do so. We're allowing the courts to make these decisions. We shouldn't. We should take back the power in Congress, by the way, from both the executive and judicial branches, to make decisions here representing the people. But we're going to sit in this infinite do loop until we have a Congress that is willing to actually represent the people instead of uh, representing a very narrow group of special interests uh, and, and not reflecting the values that the American people share, I still believe, across the country a firm belief in sovereignty and the rule of law and 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 making sure that we know who's coming in and out of our border in a post 9-11 world. These are all the basic duty of a sovereign nation. So I would just suggest to you that we've got a long way to go for us to reclaim the Article One primacy. But I'll say this one last point. We get into spending in a minute. Having watched my colleagues in the Congress over the recent couple of months up close and personally, and particularly in some of the hearings, there is a very large group of individuals here who do not in any way share our uh, belief in a limited constitutional government, do not share our belief in even capitalism, freedom. Uh, when the president in his State of the Union address basically juxtaposed freedom to socialism, our colleagues on the other side of the aisle largely sat down. When the president said that we're for freedom and against socialism, this is where we sit today. And nobody listening to this or nobody listening to anything we say in the coming two years should remotely get confused about the idea that all of these candidates on the other side of the aisle are full bore, big government believers in socialism over freedom, socialism over opportunity, uh, big government over small government and federalism and our constitutionally uh, limited government. Uh, that includes people like Beto O'Rourke, not just outspoken socialists like Bernie Sanders. Um, I might give a slight hat tip to a Howard Schultz who at least questions the you know, absurdity of the left leaning to socialism, but but I, I, I'd probably give too much credit. All right. See, now, now you're really getting into my craw here. You're really exposing something that is very uncomfortable for me that's really eating away at me. I think you and I both share um, – this long view that I know I had a great conversation with Michelle Malkin with, I'm going to have her on the show sometime soon about looking at a 2025 year window and not getting sucked into the frog in the boiling pot dynamic where we actually recognize what sort of progress we are or not making. We, we And we could look at a 25 year period and look at every measure, whether it's immigration, whether it's culture, whether it's um, healthcare, certainly budget. I mean, I remember when Newt Gingrich was shutting you know, we had the government shut down, railing against the fact that we're approaching five trillion in debt. Um, and I'm not old. And 
we just lost the baseline. And you bring up a point that the left has become so extreme. My concern is that that's allowed Republicans and their baseline, their expectations to become so low, to move so far to the left themselves that I, I watched the hearing that you were at today. You were at the budget hearing where our mutual friend Russ Vote, the acting OMB director, was presenting the administration's budget. And we, all, all our guys were just on defense with health care. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not cutting that. Yeah, yeah. You, you deserve it. And no one was giving our side of it. And now I'm seeing... And in, in a different hearing with uh, uh, some of your other colleagues on the Energy and Commerce uh, Healthcare Subcommittee, it was all about, yeah, we can't have medical Medicare for all. And I was thinking like, wait a minute. I thought we were fighting against Obamacare after we acceded to the first 30 years of healthcare takeover. So what? So now we're done with that and now we're going to fight Medicare for all and then – what happens three years from now? Well, I appreciate that question. And I, what I'll do is focus a little bit on, because this is such a large topic, I'll focus a little bit on what I focused on today in the hearing with the Office of Man- Management and Budget Director, Russ Boat, in which I try to lay out what I think the American people see, which is they have to manage their budgets as inflows, that is revenue, that is income, their jobs, what they make. And then on the other side, how much they spend. And they need how much they spend to be less than what they make. Otherwise, they get in trouble. They get debt. They... They, they start running into problems. And it doesn't mean we don't borrow something to buy a house or a car, but it means you have to live within your means. The federal government has, does not have to do that. So what you heard today, and this is all relevant to your point about health care and everything else, there is, no, uh, there is no limit to what these folks believe they can spend. They, they're just, they don't see it that way. It's, it's really troubling. The American people would be shocked to see how dismissive members of both party are to the idea that we should balance our budget. So I asked Russ, I said, look, I've heard today lots of people talking about mandatory spending. Of course, what do we mean by mandatory spending? Largely Medicare, largely Social Security, but other things too, by the way. I bet your listeners don't know that the farm bill with the food stamps packaged into it is actually considered mandatory spending. I kid you not. That's on the mandatory spending part of the ledger. So, okay, we've got all these things that members of the Republican Party and Democrat Party stand up and say, well, gosh, we can't fix this if we don't deal with the 70 percent of spending that is entitlement spending, Medicare, Social Security, you know, mandatory spending. So I said, Russ, I said, Russ, or I said, Mr. Vote, I should say. (laughs) I said, you know, I you know, when I've known uh, Russ Vote for a while, but I said, Mr. Vote, you tell me uh, what was your reaction to that awesome press conference? that we saw on the steps of the Capitol with both Republicans and Democrats with their grand solution for dealing with entitlements and dealing with Medicare and Social Security, how they're going to reform it to uh, reduce our debt. How did you feel about that? And Mr. Vogt kind of smirked a little bit and looked at him and said, I'm unaware of any such press conference. I said, I know, because this is the fraud. This is the <laughs> fraud of Washington, D.C. They all, I, didn't, I don't think I said it a fraud in the hearing, and I should have. I didn't think of it. But this is the this is the game in Washington, D.C., right? So in truth, right, this never happened. There is no bill. There is no grand plan. What they want to say is, oh, it's a it's a problem with uh, uh, mandatory spending. It's a problem with entitlement. But over here on this side, we need to spend as much as we can in in, in discretionary spending, both defense and non-defense discretionary. So this is the joke that you're alluding to. And now we're talking about Medicare for all. Now we're talking about you know, uh, VA care for all, whatever they want to on the healthcare front. You know, we need unlimited, you know, free education for everybody. 
They literally just make this stuff up. And their answer is, well, we just need some more taxes. You could tax everybody. You could take and confiscate all their wealth and you can't pay for all this stuff. But the problem isn't just the socialist utopia that's nonsense. The problem is very much the Republican Party, which says they are for fiscal responsibility, but won't do a dang thing about it. So, but, but, but what, and, and I appreciate that. I mean, that's on the budget, but specifically healthcare. What concerns me is every Republican, it wasn't just the Chip Roy type of Republicans, the, you know, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows type of Republicans. It was pretty much all of them over the last number of years was saying our stuff. How Obamacare created a private monopoly and inexorably raised the cost of insurance to make it unaffordable. It chased people out of the business. You know, a, a recent survey of, of 9,000 physicians conducted by, by the Physicians Foundation um, found that the morale of the profession is lower than ever thanks to the monopoly created by Obamacare um, and the red tape. The number of physicians who identified as independent practice owners plummeted from 48.5% in 2012 to just 31% are private practitioners in America. It's all special interest. It's giving them a monopoly. It's hurting everyone. They're for the big guy. But yet I'm seeing the Democrats ride high on this narrative of they're for the little guy. And somehow Republicans are bought out from the special interest and they look pretty pathetic. They don't have good responses. They don't. Uh, they really don't. And, and again, this is something that would be for another long uh, portion of your show. And as usual, I'd love to come back and talk more specifically about this. But here, here's what I would say is that until our side wants to get serious about talking about health care freedom, which is what I ran on. I didn't I didn't run on Obamacare repeal. I didn't run on, you know, some specific Washington program until we get serious about wanting to run on health care freedom and empowering doctors and empowering people and putting more money into their health savings accounts by virtue of what they can save and freeing up our system so that we can have as many options in the world as we do right now under food, clothing, shelter, and any other basic necessities of life, then we will lose. And right now, Republicans are on defense on health care instead of on offense. We should be going on offense against UMRA, HIPAA, MTALA, Obamacare, the Managed Care Act of 1970, whatever it was, three or four. All of these things that are highly constraining to a healthcare market working. And instead of talking about how that's the problem, how government agencies are the problem, how there's limits on the ability of doctors to go out and produce a product and then sell it to us in an open market is the problem how the limits on the ability of a financial risk company to go out in the open market and sell you and I a product based on actuarial data that is now eliminated essentially by Obamacare, mm-hmm. how that's the problem. <clears throat> we don't. I love it. I was in a debate with this crazy leftist in Austin, and she talked about the wild, wild west, quote unquote, before Obamacare back in 2008. I said, that wild, wild west, do you know how regulated healthcare was in 2007, 2008? It's extraordinarily <laughs> regulated. That was the problem. Then the Democrats, with some recalcitrant Republicans, but Democrats on a party line vote, to be honest and clear, in 2009, jammed down Obamacare down our throats. And then Republicans, what did they do? They said, well, you know, thank you, sir. May I have another, to quote the great Animal House. <laughs> and I mean, right? I mean, that's really <clears throat> what they did. It's like, well, you know, I get it. So now what are we going to do? Well, we got to have repeal and replace. Well, what is repeal and replace, ladies and gentlemen? It's more Washington government poppycock. And that's what we get. Because some staffer wrote repeal and replace on a napkin saying that'd be a better message to say we're going to replace it. You can't replace a crap program with crap Washington ideas. 
You replace a crap program with freedom and you need to talk about freedom. And our, unfortunately, our leaders in Washington are unwilling to do that to date. But I'm here and trying. So there's some of us who are. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. If you look at the price of healthcare, it's gone up almost commensurate with the amount we pumped into the industry. We spent $27 billion in 1960. Okay, adjusted for inflation, that's $250 billion. Today, we spend about $3.5 trillion as a nation. About half of that is direct governmental spending. The other half really is the insurance cartel, which is propped up by the government through the employer uh, mandate, through the, you know, obviously the tax code, all the subsidies, all the regula- regulations, all the market distortions. We would have been better off flushing that money down the toilet. Part of what I'm concerned about with our messaging on the budget is that we always get caught in a, you know, in a bind. That well, man, what, what do we cut? We're in debt, but we we can't cut anything because people are going to feel pain. And you know, I don't want to cut. I don't want pain. And you know, what I'm thinking is, no one's giving the message. It's not really even about cutting. It's about the the programs engendered the problems that therefore you need them but if you took away the source of the problems then it's not a matter of going without i mean i agree with your analogy that sometimes you got to prioritize you got to go without um your colleague uh, i believe steve womack from arkansas talked about his uh time as a cattle rancher um you know weaning a calf off of uh off of its its milk and how painful that is that's a tough message. You know, people don't like pain. I mean, don't we need to craft a message to show them how it's these guys brought the pain? We're going to take away the problem. Yeah, I, I, I can't uh, disagree with you in, in any way, shape or form. Um, what, what I would advocate for you and your listeners is that we have got to double down going on offense. We need to double down right now. We've got a window. OK, we really do. We have a brief window. You and I both know and your listeners know nothing is really, truly going to get accomplished over the next 20 months. Thank the Lord, because when Washington is doing stuff, it's typically that. Except in the courts. So our goal, yeah. <laughs> our, well, in the, I know, but, you know, we can, <laughs> right. So, but let, we've got the next, you know, year and a half to go try to fight. You know, politics are going to take care of themselves. We help ourselves politically if we're fighting. But even more importantly, if we can get on offense and start winning minds and hearts by defining what we're trying to do in terms of, Increasing opportunity and options in healthcare, driving down the cost of healthcare, getting these government um, regulations out of the way so that you can have as many doctors and as many healthcare tra- options as you choose, rather than having it doled out to you by some bureaucrat, uh, you know, in, in out of London if you're in the UK or in this case out of, the, out of Washington. I, I think we can go on offense <clears throat> if if we're willing to challenge the DC orthodoxy and challenge the party orthodoxy and hit it head on. So that would be what I would suggest. Um, let's not accept status quo. I think the new freshmen that are here, while many of them are still going to play the Washington game, there is a large hunger for people to want to challenge the, the, the just accepted and conventional wisdom. We can't solve it all in one day, but we can get people believing in a better way. And what better way to juxtapose it than to the radical left, which is now going full-throated socialism? So we need to take it to them. Socialized medicine does not work. It does not provide better care. It does not provide uh, the kind of false notions of care in your, your, your whole life that these guys are promoting. And in fact, I always get a kick out of people look at some of these countries that are supposed full bore socialist countries economically and with healthcare and everything. You go look at it, a lot of them have more competition 
embedded in their system than we do. Seriously. <laughs> you go look at some of the Scandinavian countries and things are supposedly these socialist utopias. They really do in many, in many ways, in many cases, have more uh, freedom and competition embedded in what they're doing in, in a lot of these areas that the left holds them up, ignoring the horror stories of Venezuela and Russia over the years and, and other uh, uh, you know, socialist hellholes around the country, around the world. So I would just encourage everybody, look, we just got to go on offense, right? We can't sit back. And you know, we need to take it to them and get, get the data on our side and go, go win. So I appreciate you highlighting all of that. Um, but uh, everybody needs to be vigilant and uh, stand up for what we believe in. There are believers in Washington. There are fewer of us than there are the, the, the swamp creatures, but they are, we exist and we're out there fighting. Well, thanks so much, Chip, for joining us as always. Thanks for fighting. Keep us updated on all these cultural, civilization, budgetary issues. Uh, we cannot survive if we do not solve these issues in this generation. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Thanks so much for joining us, Chip. Thank you for all you do. Thanks, listeners. And let's talk soon. Take care. That was Chip Roy, congressman from Texas, District 21. And again, I just think Chip, Chip is uh, being a little humble there, to say the least, when he says, you know, there's other guys fighting. Um, you know, he doesn't want to trash colleagues, but there really are very few. With that said, if you notice, he did say he co-sponsored this cartel bill with Mark Green from Tennessee. Mark is also a doctor, and I think he worked in the business side of healthcare, healthcare administration. So he does have a good view on that, and I know he's working with Chip on healthcare issues as well. So there's him, there's a couple others, not too many, but um, it's certainly encouraging to hear from him. He has not changed one iota since he's gotten there. He's just truly... uh, you know, everything we expected of him, and and we're very thankful for that. But again, notice what he said at the end. We have to go on offense. You have to have your your own direction. See, we could rail against socialist medicine just like Greg Walden and these other establishment guys did at the committee today. But the difference is when they do it, they're doing it from a position of weakness that they're agreeing to every degree of venture socialism we've had and then they're just going to be schlepped, to use the Yiddish expression, all the way to the left again and again and again. Whereas we need to hold the line and say, no, this is where we're headed. This is why you're wrong. This is why you caused the problems that you're now coming as the Santa Claus to solve. We're not going to have your problems, so we don't need your debt-ridden solutions. And then you got to fight for it from there. So... um. That is the story of the day. We packed in a lot of information today, a lot of important issues. Glad we were able to get him on. Um, it's very generous of him to come between committee hearings and votes and everything. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get him, but um, let me know. Let me know what other members of Congress you want on the show. <laughs> Frankly, there aren't too many that will talk to me anyway, uh, but uh, let me know. Drop me a note, dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. I'm not always on Twitter, but I try to see it. It's... Uh, you know, it's hard to catch up on all, you know, the mail and messages and things like that. But um, certainly if you email me, I will likely see it. And yes, this will be a busy week. It's already a busy week. Thank you all for making this one of the fastest growing podcasts around. We are totally on the iTunes charts, Stitcher charts now, really rocketing up. And that is all without any Fox News, without any swamp oriented 
uh, help, all doing it with the power of this audience. Thank you all. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.